0: You know, there's an importance to context. Have you ever noticed that? Not terribly often, but maybe two days a month, Elizabeth heads off to work, and she leaves me with all four children. (laughs) So it's appropriate that you hear crying right now, because that's kind of how the day can go. But as a father, I get to see exactly firsthand what Elizabeth goes through day after day. (laughs) But we get by, we get the breakfast, we get the diapers changed. We try and keep things cleaned up. We get them changed out of their jammies, into their clothes, play clothes for the day. And if it's warm, we send them outside. Thank goodness for warm days. Right, parents? <laughs> but it's beyond, beyond me. Every time, as it rolls around, I don't know, she'll get home around 3.30, 4, 4.30, just depends on the day. The house started out different than it ends up at that time of the day. There's toys everywhere. There's cushions off of the couch. There's the kitchen table hasn't been wiped down. I'm pretty sure I asked somebody to do that. There's, there's dishes in the sink. The place is just a mess. <laughs> and then there's the phone call. I'm not as sophisticated as you, Dan. <clears throat> Can you help me back there, Val? No, it's too late. I didn't coordinate this. Ring. I didn't know you grew up with Gordon Cloco, by the way. (laughs) I'm on my way home. Now she does that for good reason. (laughs) If you haven't noticed, Elizabeth is very smart. And the reason is, judgment is coming. Oh, you're coming home early. Great, all right. Uh, Okay, I gotta go. (laughs) Click. Mom's coming home. All hands on deck. Everybody, clean up your room. Matthew, pick up your clothes. Lauren, do this. Marianne, where's Marianne? How come you have mud everywhere? Oh, we gotta pick this up. We have about what? 20 minutes. Hurry. We get a lot done. In 20 minutes. (laughs) And then we run to greet Mama. I'm trying not to be out of breath at this point. I smile, put on my best smile, and tell her hello. We're so glad that you're here, and the whole thing. And then she does a walkthrough of the house. (laughs) And she's been known to say at times... What happened to this place? It's a wreck! To which I think to myself, if you only knew (laughs) what this house in the form of a wreck really looks like. One of these days she may not call me and find out, but if she knows better, She knows that that's a a 20 minutes she doesn't want to let go. (laughs) The importance of context. Had she seen the house earlier that day, she probably would say, this house looks amazing, right? Of course, in her mind, the context is how she left it that morning. But my point being, context is crucial. Without context, we really have no idea of what's really happening and why this is happening and the outcomes. The, the Olympics are a prime example of this. They've really wised up. Instead of just showing you the, the events as they happen, what do they do in, in between? Commercial. Well, there's always commercials. <laughs> they give you little interviews and share with you what this individual has gone through, has, has, you know, has happened in their life, and then they trained since they were three years old, and then they broke their leg, and they said they'd never make it to the Olympics, and all these things to where by the end, what are you doing? <laughs> you're just crying. And then, maybe they're expected to win gold or something, and when they do, you're just elated. And somebody else walks in, they haven't seen that little, you know, Period of their life, and they say, Huh, they won gold. I actually was hoping for the other guy. What? It's the context that now makes the race have some significant meaning. And so this weekend, around the world, people are remembering a big event the resurrection of Jesus Christ yet void of its context, it really lacks the punch. Yes, it is crucial, but I want to go back and understand some statements that help us understand why it's so crucial. So this morning, I want to look at three statements they are all well-known, statements that Jesus made to his father in the final moments, and you know them all very well. The first we're going to look at is, my God, my God, finish it. Why have you forsaken You've heard that. Matthew 27, verse 36. The second one we sang about. It. You're good. And the third one. The last words Jesus spoke to his father. Father, into your hands. I commit my spirit. Luke 23, 46. But we, before we focus on these three final statements of Jesus from the cross at the end of his life, I'm going to look at the the background that immediately preceded those three declarations. You may recall the old sanctuary service. When an individual sinned in Israel, they would bring an animal into the court of the sanctuary. They would place their hand upon the head of the animal, whether it was a lamb or a goat or any other type of animal, and they would confess their sin onto the head of that animal, thus transferring their sin from themselves to the animal. And notice all of this transference took place while the animal was yet alive the animal bore the sin of the sinner and then of course the animal was slain now it's significant that sin was placed on the head of the animal the head is where our brain is it's where our thinking and our reasoning and our feelings occur Now, I want us to visit the events that took place immediately before the cross. Sometimes we think that the cross tells the whole story, but the events that led up to the cross are just as important as Jesus hanging on the cross of Calvary. So let's visit now the Garden of Gethsemane. When we think of Jesus bearing the sins of the world, we think of the cross. But actually, the sins of the world were placed on Jesus, not at the cross, but at the Garden of Gethsemane. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26 and verse 38. Matthew, chapter 26 and verse 38. And there we read, Then he, Jesus... Said to them, his disciples, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Stay here and watch with me. Notice something in this verse. There is a direct correlation between sorrow and death. Jesus said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Let me suggest this morning that it will be his sorrow that will ultimately lead to his death. Now, in hard times, we usually look for support, don't we? From family, from close friends, from our church family, maybe even from coworkers that you're close with or some neighbors. The only thing worse than going through a time of crisis is to go through that time of crisis alone. Friends, Jesus was very much alone. Those he came to save would soon cry out, Crucify him! The disciples who Jesus begged to pray with him in the garden fell asleep Judas whom Jesus called his friend betrays his lord Peter denies him eventually using vulgar language to convince I don't know that man and in the garden the disciples would all flee And that's why we're told in Isaiah 63, verse 3, that Jesus tread the winepress alone, and none were with him. If you stop and think, Jesus was crucified outside the camp, outside of Jerusalem, where felons and murderers were persecuted. And it was there that he tread the winepresses alone, Bearing the penalty that should have fallen on the sinner. He was very much alone. And none was with him. He had no earthly support. As Jesus hung on the cross, it seemed like even his father forsook him. Because he cried, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? So he didn't feel the support of his father. Let's follow Jesus a little closer in the garden. Matthew 26 speaks about a cup that Jesus was going to drink. Three times Jesus uttered a prayer of anguish to his father. Look at Matthew 26, verse 39. We are told he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father. You can just hear the passion in his voice. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then we're told in verse 42 that Jesus prayed the same prayer again. And it says there again, a second time he prayed, Oh my father, this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it. Notice he had to drink what was in the cup. Your will be done. And then we're told in verse 44, so he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Three times Jesus crying out in anguish to his father to take away the cup if it is possible. But of course, the question we are left asking is what is in the cup that was so difficult to drink? The word for cup that is used there is the same word used in Revelation 16, 19, where we are told that Babylon will drink of the wine of the fierceness of God in the cup. So what was in the cup was the wine of God's wrath. And the question is, who gave Jesus that cup with the wine? John 18, 11 tells us, this is when Peter took out his sword, and he was about to cut off the ear of the servant. And Jesus said, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink of the cup which my father has given me? The cup was given to him by his father to drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we, all of us, like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who laid it upon him? The Lord, the Father, laid on Him the iniquity of all of us. That's why Jesus suffered such anguish. That's why Jesus felt separated from His Father. Desire of Ages 753 says that Christ felt the anguish that the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. He felt like those will feel after the door of probation is closed and they are unsaved. It was the sense of sin bringing the Father's wrath upon him as man's substitute that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. End quote." Hebrews 5 7, we find this description of the anguish of Jesus in Gethsemane. Hebrews 5, 7, who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Notice the words. Prayers, supplications, cries, tears that he uttered to his father as I imagine him clawing at the earth So terrible was his anguish in Gethsemane as the sins of the world were placed upon him. Have you ever done something terrible that you know you shouldn't have done? And been convicted of that? And that's just washed over you. And you feel so guilty. You feel so dirty. You feel so ashamed. You feel so separated. In fact, it can be very overwhelming. Add to that the person sitting next to you. Their shame and their guilt and their sin. And on the other side. The pew behind you, in front of you. The whole world. All on one pinpoint in the universe. The heart of God. Luke 22:44 says that Jesus sweat drops of blood. It says being in agony he prayed more earnestly then his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. Has anyone here seen anybody who is filled with such anguish that they sweat drops of blood? It been several years ago now, the film "The Passion," which I have not seen, but in reading about it and hearing about it, depicts the incredible physical pain Jesus endured. Yet it misses the bigger picture. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ suffered in man's stead. And the human nature of the Son of God staggered under the terrible horror of the guilt of sin until from its pale, staggering, quivering lips was forced the agonizing cry, Oh my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Human nature would then and there have died under the horror of the sense of sin. Had not an angel from heaven strengthened him to bear the agony, Christ was suffering the death that was pronounced upon the transgressors of God's law. Found an amazing grace, page 168. Human nature would have then and there died unless that angel would not have come and given him strength. The pressure of sin would have crushed him before anyone laid a finger on him. So with that context, let's look at those three declarations of Jesus on the cross. The first, John 8, 29, we're told something of the relationship between Jesus and his father, and Jesus speaks and says, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. The Father has not left me alone, he says during his ministry. But as Jesus is hanging on the cross, the sins have been placed upon him in the Garden of Gethsemane. He has drunk the cup of God's wrath, and he cries out in anguish from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus cry those words? Because the guilt of every sin pressed its weight upon the divine soul of the world's redeemer. The evil thoughts, the evil words, the evil deeds of every son and daughter of Adam called for retribution upon himself for he had become man's substitute. Though the guilt of sin was not his, his spirit was torn and bruised by the transgressions of us. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, and he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. you want to know what that anguish was like? Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 goes on. Surely he has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. And we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one in his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I challenge you to write out Isaiah 53 sometime and make it personal. Put your name in there. Exchange some of the pronouns for yourself. That's why Jesus on the cross said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because of our sins. Your sins, my sins, everyone's sins. Ever committed. And he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Second declaration to his father on the cross. Yet... Is finished. We read about it in John 19 30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Here Jesus is speaking again to the Father, telling him, It's done. It's finished. But what is finished? The fact is that Jesus came to this earth for two principal reasons. I realize there's many others, but two principal reasons. Reason number one, the law required absolute perfection. Who here can fulfill that? Even if you never did another sin or committed another another sin from this day forward, who would pay for the ones yesterday and the day before that? Now, does God give us the power to overcome sin in our lives? Yes, he does. But that doesn't rectify past sins, and the law requires perfect obedience to the law. And the reality is, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible tells us. We're all sinners, We cannot meet the requirements of the law. So Jesus came to this world to live the life that the law requires of us. He came to live in our place. He came to weave a robe of perfect righteousness that he could offer in fulfillment of the law. In our place. So he did that he did something else he also had to take care of the problem of sin so after jesus lived in perfect character in harmony with the law and wove a robe of righteousness then jesus took upon himself all of our sins and he died on the cross for those sins he lived for us and he died for us He lived in our place and he died in our place. And Jesus is saying to his father, it is finished. Through my life, there is now a perfect robe available. And further, I have died for the sins of the whole world. The plan of salvation has been made available to all So does that mean that salvation was finished at the cross? Or did Jesus ascend to heaven to finish the work in the heavenly sanctuary? Well, the answer is both. The fact is, at the cross, Jesus finished the provision for salvation. A way was provided for all mankind. There was a perfect life, and there was a death for sin available. Available but he continues his work of applying his life and death to those who through repentance and confession and faith in Christ claim what Jesus did. Which brings us to Christ's final declaration on the cross. We find it in Luke 23, 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. You know, it's interesting. Jesus felt forsaken by his father. He had said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But notice that when he dies, he doesn't die without hope. Because he says to the same father, "Into your hands I commit my spirit." What is his spirit? Let me suggest it's the breath of life along with that their personal identity, their character, So, in essence, Jesus is saying, Father, preserve my character in your record. Because you promised that if I was successful, you would resurrect me. So, while Jesus felt forsaken, at the same time, he knew he was not forsaken. You might be thinking, how's that possible? Spirit of Prophecy tells us in the Echoes, September 15, 1892. But when in his expiring agonies despair pressed upon the soul of the Redeemer, he relied upon the evidences that had hitherto been given him of his father's acceptance. And as he yielded up his precious life by faith alone, he rested in him whom it had been his joy to obey. He didn't feel it. It didn't make sense. Everything on the peripheral, everything in front of him, everything he felt said, "God, my God has forsaken me. But by faith alone, he rested in him who it had been his joy to obey. Jesus knew his father from previous experience. Friends, if you wait until that moment when nothing around you feels like God is there, you'll be lost. But if when that moment comes, that moment of doubt, that moment of persecution, whatever it might be, if in that moment you can say, I don't feel it, it doesn't make sense, but I know the character of God. I know He loves me. He cares for me. I know I can trust in Him, even though I don't get it. The quote continues, though he realizes but dimly that he shall triumph over death, he cries with a loud voice, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He's acquainted with the character of his father. He understands his justice, his mercy, and his great love. In submission, he commends himself to God. He felt separated from his father, but he knew That his father was not separated from him because he knew him from previous experience. His statement was not based on feelings but on faith. So here in submission, he commends himself to God. Are you ever tempted to allow your feelings to dictate your connection with God? Well, I don't feel saved I don't feel like I can overcome through Jesus Christ I don't feel like that Bible promise is for me no Jesus didn't depend on his feelings or his emotions but rather he trusted and depended on the promises of the Father Because he knew his father from personal experience. So Jesus rested in the tomb. And very early, the first day of the week, two angels descended from heaven, and one removed the stone and sat on it, and the other stood before the tomb with a loud voice said, O thou son of God, thy father calls thee. Do you notice the connection? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Then the angel comes down and says, Thy Father calls thee, come forth. His Father fulfilled his promise. So who raised Jesus from the dead? Who resurrected Jesus? Was it the Father? Was it the angel? Or was it Jesus himself? Let me read this to you from... SDA Bible Commentary, Volume 5, it says, He who died for the sins of the world was to remain in the tomb the allotted time. He was in that stony prison house as a prisoner of divine justice. He was responsible to the judge of the universe. He was bearing the sins of the world, and his father only could release him. That's why Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He is depending on the promise of the Father. Now, I know there's a passage that says Jesus would resurrect himself, but let's read it carefully. It's found in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Jesus is speaking. John chapter 10, beginning verse 17. says, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. See, there it is. Jesus is the one. But let's continue reading. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power. Really, a better translation of that type of power is Authority. I have the power and authority to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Why? This command I have received from my Father. He was a prisoner of divine justice, and he relied on the promises of the Father, who he learned to love and trust through personal experience. And his Father resurrected him. And what does all this mean for us? Tells me three things. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Tells me that Jesus died the second death. He felt the weight of my sins. That he bore the penalty that I deserve. That my sin was transferred on the head of Jesus Christ. And under the burden of my sin, he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It tells me it is finished. Jesus succeeded. He has made provision for us, for you and for me. He has lived in our place and he has died in our place. He has provided me with a way of escape. It is finished. And thirdly, into thy hands I commit my spirit. In his darkest hour. As the demons of hell pressed against him and told him there was no hope, it was over, give up, that he'd be eternally lost, never to live again. That even during that overwhelmingly dark time when everything he saw and knew and felt seemed hopeless, Jesus had hope. It's the same hope you and I can have, by the way. Hope in the father that he knew. Hope in the father he loved and trusted. Hope in the promises of his father. And while he didn't feel it, he believed it. And said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, preserve my character in your record. And every promise of God was met in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and hold the keys of death and Hades. Revelation 1.18. 1 Corinthians 15.57, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Galatians 3, 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 10, 10, for I have come that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. John 14, 2 and 3. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Romans 8:34. It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Had Jesus not resurrected, the whole thing would be a fairy tale. But provision has been made. The sacrifice was accepted by the Father. And now Jesus stands at the right hand of the Father and is interceding on our behalf to apply his blood, his perfect blood, on our behalf. He longs to offer his perfect life in our place. He longs to apply his death in our place to become the curse for us that we might receive the righteousness of Christ. Will you accept him today? Are you willing to say, Lord, I don't want your death and your pain and your agony to go in vain for me. I want to accept your sacrifice. I want to accept the peace that you offer and the hope that you offer, the assurance that I can have. All around the world, people are looking for hope and for peace and assurance. If you could put it in a bottle, they couldn't keep it on the shelves. And Jesus says, I freely offer it. And if the Lord has touched your heart and you want to make a commitment to him, I invite you to come forward. Dear Heavenly Father, we've been reminded again today. We've heard the story so many times, it's easy for our hearts to grow cold, to be numb. But when we think about what you have done, the sacrifice that you made to put it all on the table, all in the line, because you long for each one here, each face to be in your kingdom. And you didn't send a representative. You came yourself. And you lived that perfect life. And you died, the lamb without blemish, to offer us something that none of us deserve, eternal life. Lord, words are far too shallow to say thank you for such a gift. So, Lord, this morning we commit again to live in such a way that honors you and demonstrates to the world that we have been forgiven.